This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, the province announced plans to hire another 193 long-term care inspectors. It's something that CARP and other stakeholders have been calling for. But there's another issue, and it has to do with which companies will get licenses to develop more beds. And there's concern that some of those nursing homes that were bad actors where dozens of residents died will, uh, quote, be rewarded. So what do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And I'm joined by Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario, and Dr. Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Hello and welcome. Hi, Libby. So good to be back with you. Thank you. You too. So, uh, Lisa, uh, your reaction to the inspectors? I think that we need to make sure that we have very strong oversight of our long-term care homes. Uh, And we've seen, as uh, you were mentioning, Libby, there were some very bad actors um, and some tragic stories that came out of the pandemic. And we need to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But we also have to look at the rest of the sector because we're in the middle of a staffing crisis. And so is this the time uh, to immediately be having tougher inspections when we don't have enough staff and we don't know anything yet about this new inspection regime? Doris, what do you think? Well, I think that inspections and special inspections that are unannounced are very, very important. And I do think they need to go hand by hand hand-in-hand with improved staffing, and also with this related to those inspections. Like, you cannot implement inspections, which we are seeing, and also give additional beds to a place like, you know, Orchard Villa that uh, should have been closed, quite frankly. And that refers to your comment about should bad apples get extra bets and, and millions and millions of dollars for extra bets? The answer to me is no. Okay, well, um, so uh, I I'm, I'm, would like to straighten out where we are on that, because frankly, when I was listening to question period, I was under the impression that maybe some of them already received uh, these licenses. But when I looked, it looks to me that the applications just opened up a week ago, that people who applied in 2019 have to reapply. Um, so what's the situation there? Is this just uh, you want to make sure that that doesn't happen? Or is there, you know, have have any of these uh, so-called bad actors already received uh, some, yeah. some more licenses? Yeah, I can answer that. So the government has had a few um, proposal calls, Libby, where they have sought um, applications. And yes, some bad actors have received uh, new beds. And now the latest one that they announced last week uh, is for another 10,000 beds. And so because not everybody who applied got um, their allocations the last few times around, they're saying if you've already applied in 2019 and you didn't get it, then you need to reapply now. But what we're saying is that all government funding for new long-term care beds in Ontario should go to not-for-profit and municipal homes because two out of three people on the wait list for long-term care want to be in not-for-profit or municipal homes. And we've also seen better outcomes during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, non-profit homes provide more care, 20% more care, and also municipal homes than for-profit homes and have much better outcomes. Mm-hmm. So this is for going forward as opposed to um, other plans. Uh, the NDP wants to buy out the for-profit homes. Doris, what do you think of that? So we have for many, many years said that new services, whether long-term care, home care, etc., should be invested in not-for-profit for the reasons that Lisa 
11 mentioned because the, the research and evaluations are plentiful on the issue of deliver at lower cost, better outcomes. Uh, we are not saying that we need to repatriate all the current homes to not-for-profit because that will be extremely disruptive to the system. But we need to put our, our line on the sand. There is a big difference between repatriating all the homes versus giving additional money to homes that should be closed. Because, as I said, some of the homes that were mentioned in the report from the Canadian Armed Forces should have been closed back then, let alone receive additional funds. And then the other line on the sand is the issue of staffing, the four hours of staffing with the percentage of, you know, PSWs no more than 55, RNs 20, 20%, and RPNs 25%. The, mini, the minister announced money for the four hours, but that will take years, and he still has not said what will be the percentage of, you know, PSWs, RNs, RPNs, which provide a different type of outcomes. Uh, the same as nurse practitioners, not a penny to have one nurse practitioner in every single uh, 120 residents in, in, in nursing homes, whether for profit or not for profit. They need the staffing to do good care. Uh, Lisa, I, I just want to get back to uh, something you brought up. So which companies have received money for additional beds uh, that had very bad outcomes during the pandemic? I don't have the list in front of me, Libby, but I, I think Orchard Villa might have got some. Um, I, I just remember looking at it thinking, wow, I can't believe this. Um, and I think that that's why we're not asking the government to turn back the clock, though, um, and open existing agreements. We just want to make sure that on a go-forward basis that all future beds go to not-for-profit and municipal homes. And, um, you know, further to Doris's comment about the staffing, we still haven't received the money yet for uh, more staffing. It was announced in April. We know it's coming really soon, but homes haven't had the opportunity yet to staff up. So we're in the middle of a staffing crisis in long-term care. And by having a new enforcement regime immediately put in place, we are very deeply concerned our homes will be destabilized and that well-intentioned staff management and volunteer boards of directors will leave. And just, that is just, something just a minute. I, so I know there's a staffing shortage. Yeah. Uh, so are you saying that y you wouldn't be able to get long-term care staff once you have the money? But uh, I mean, are they going to get their 193 inspectors tomorrow? Well, interesting you asked that question, Libby. So um, it is going to be a challenge, but likely the government pays better than a lot of long-term care homes. And a lot of those inspectors will be nurses. So one of the things we're worried about is that they're going to take nurses out of homes when we are already having a staffing crisis and put them into oversight. Now, we agree with the oversight, but like I said, we need to make sure that we we have enough staff in place and that we know how to, um, that we're learning about the new inspections protocol that they're going to be putting in place. But in the meantime, what I think the government needs to do is they know who the bad actors are, Libby. They need to deal with them immediately, and they need to provide consequences. Well, they, they've they said they're going to, they are going to do that. I mean, Rod Phillips said, first of all, he's putting the four hours and, and the enforcement in legislation, and he's giving these inspectors the power to lay a charge by themselves, which uh, they have not had in the past. I mean, Doris, do you believe him? Um, I think that, and I have spoken with Minister Phillips, I think the inspectors themselves need training on what they're inspecting. They need standards that are across the board. They, those standards need to be based on evidence-based uh, practices, not on whatever that some of them, you know, are not uh, clear. Um, we have said to the minister that embedding evidence into the electronic medical records will improve the care way more than any inspection and staffing will improve the the outcomes more than any inspection. But if, if inspectors were held accountable to measure what's happening in the homes against best practices, then I think it can help to improve continuous quality improvement. The problem so far has been with the inspections that is punitive. It's punitive it has been always punitive forever. This is not just this government. 
and it needs to move to a quality improvement approach, not to a punitive approach, because if not, staff will continue to fly away, quite frankly, and I mean fly away to other jurisdictions, not only to other sectors. And, um, you know, they have it very difficult, Libby. Families have it difficult because the care is not where it needs to be. Residents have it difficult because of the length of this pandemic, plus the care not where it needs to be. And staff have it hugely difficult because they don't have the resources and the necessary expertise sometimes to provide the care. So they need all of the above, and all of the above can be done, and the minister knows that it can be done. Mm-hmm. And what's your view of that, Lisa? I agree with a lot of what Doris is saying, that the inspections are punitive, and I think when you have bad actors and you need to deal with them and have serious consequences, that needs to be done. But a lot of our members are non all of our members are nonprofit homes, municipal and charitable homes. They want to do everything possible to protect seniors, and they need to have more guidance and direction. They don't understand there's hundreds of regulations under the Act, Libby, and it's not obvious how to meet all of those requirements. So we need to have um, more training and education to the sector so they can get that support, which is provided in many other sectors, including the retirement home sector. And that would make a huge difference. By You cannot solve the problem in long-term care by just focusing on inspections. You need to also look at making that uh, staffing come true. And today the government did have a great announcement on uh, bridging programs uh, for uh, people to become nurses. We need more of that. And we also need to look at improving care so that it's focused on emotional care, not just physical care. And that's how we can transform the system. Hmm. And uh, what do you think the chances are, uh, Dr. Greenspoon, that uh, the government will uh, just award licenses to nonprofit and municipal homes? Uh, uh, just looking at it, I would think uh, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen, in my view, with any government, quite frankly, because of the disruption. But that does not mean that we don't uh, held accountable those terrible performance. I'm not talking bad. They're terrible, some of them. I mean, what happened with those homes where the Canadian Armed Forces were there and what they found inside, it was awful. So there is a huge gap between, you know, not turning the clock and moving forward and yet giving them additional millions and millions of dollars to open more beds when you know they're bad performers. That needs to stop. If you, if we have, we can have all the inspections, maybe, but if there is no teeth and you know you will get more money because you are the friend of this or the friend of that or the, you have this lobbyist or the other lobbyist, then no inspection will help. So I rather put again the funding in staffing. I put the funding in evidence-based practices. I put the funding on inspectors that are trained to connect with the staff related to those practices as a quality improvement and then cut, nip in the bud every time there are bad apples that are consistently bad apples, hold their license and don't give, for certain, don't give them additional funds. For certain, don't give them additional funds, but also take away or suspend their licenses. It will change overnight the care. Uh, Lisa, I'm going to give the last word to you. What I was also going to say, and I, I agree with a lot of what Doris is saying, um, is that what we're seeing now is the government treating all homes the same, almost as if all homes have the, you know, are bad actors. And because of that very harsh approach that's being taken, we are seeing great fear coming from our member homes who are worried that their administrators or board members could be fined or have to go to jail. And, you know, our homes have had great outcomes for the most part, um, and do very well. And so we have to make sure that in making these changes, we don't end up um, destroying the not-for-profit and municipal sector. Uh, as well, there can be lots the government can do to encourage more uh, development in the sector of new beds, and we have suggestions on that. So we think there's a lot more that could be done, more than just inspections, which are, of course, a, cre- a key element of the system. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Doris Greenspoon and Lisa Levin. 
Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa, for being with us. Uh, Good to be together, and thank you, Libby, so much. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, would you like to get a booster shot? Well, people in British Columbia are going to be getting them uh, as of January, but if they're older than 70... Tomorrow, maybe. So uh, what's up with what's going on here? We will talk booster shots when we come back. Let me give the numbers out if you have a view. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. This week, BC announced a program to roll out booster shots to anyone who has already received two jabs. It'll roll out in January and residents will be eligible as long as it's been six months since their last shot. People who are over 70 or immunocompromised can get their boosters now. So what about us here in Ontario? Are we chopped liver? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, a family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. Hello, how's everyone? Hello, Libby. Hi. So, uh, BC is getting booster shots. Uh, there are booster shots quite readily available in the United States and Israel. They've already finished doing their booster shots. Uh, Timothy Sly, what's going on here? Well, we know they work. And they work, especially if you have a six to eight month period, where it seems that the immune system becomes a little more mature you leave it. But um, uh, the the idea of everybody getting the booster shot has me somewhat uncomfortable. Uh, we've administered something like uh, 30, uh, sorry, about 40 million doses of this around the world at the moment. But somewhere around 1.4% of that vaccine has gone to countries that uh, are, are in a very poor uh, situation. And this is a problem. All of, our, all of our variants come from these places where there's a lot of replication. We can expect more variants, probably more aggressive variants, if we don't get vaccine into these people. So that's the other side of the argument. Right. Except uh, is the government, you know, for our purposes is is uh, stockpiling vaccine. I don't I don't think uh, that, you know, they might uh, give some additional money for for the rest of the world. But I don't think they're going to say, okay, we're emptying our stocks or not going to take delivery and and we're going to send it to another part of the world. I don't think that's happening, Dr. Gorfinkel. What I find most concerning about this is that people look at it as some kind of ground and stone edict. Oh, no one can get the booster shot. I would suggest that as of now, as of today, individuals over 65 with severe comorbidities, I'm talking about bad lung disease, bad heart disease, diabetes, cancer, people on dialysis, you know, people who are vaccinated five months ago plus should talk to their doctor about getting a booster shot. This makes a lot of sense. Well, I think just a minute, I don't... size fits all, but at least for now, that's something we should be thinking about. Okay, but I think that is happening now. Am I wrong? Well, right now, Ontario is only giving it to individuals in long-term care and with severe immunosuppression. We're actually following the National Advisory Committee on Immunization's guidelines. So if somebody's at particularly high risk over 65 in community dwelling, many of them are not even asking because they, they, they've either been turned away or just figure they can't ask. But I'm, I'm suggesting here a new level of empowerment. We're expecting the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, or NACI, to come out with an announcement sometime in the next week about expanding who really should be getting vaccinated. I, like Dr. Sly, really struggle with individuals, especially under 30, getting a booster shot. 
question mark. What about myocarditis? Have we forgotten that? Um, Dr. Sly, one of the things that I'm very curious about in terms of booster shots and how that works is that all of the evidence, as far as I know, is based on mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer, the Moderna. A lot of people here got AstraZeneca. I mean, does it work in the same way in terms of waning immunity? And does the booster work in the same way? Yeah, the end point uh, for, for this is to produce that uh, humoral antibody response and, of course, the cellular response going along with that, the, the C and D cells. So they all get to that end point, but they do it by a different route. Uh, I think probably Dr. Goffingal will be better as a clinician to respond to exactly how that route is achieved. Well, the best data we have is really from Israel. And that's why so much of the data you hear about is, is around Pfizer. And, of course, there's data coming out of the U.K. as well. But when it comes to booster shots, because Israel was first giving the shots and because they gave it rapidly and three weeks apart for Pfizer, you know, not like that. It's totally different than what happened in Canada. Many people got their vaccines as far as three months apart. Right. So it's a very different kind of situation. But the data that we have, the best data, is actually based on messenger RNA technology. So when we talk about booster shots, generally you'll see references to those vaccines much more frequently than AstraZeneca vaccines. And what did that Israeli data show? After one dose, we saw 52% efficacy. After the second dose, it zooped up to 94% two weeks after getting that second shot. But what happened at between month five and six? Suddenly, since we're talking about symptomatic disease, not severe disease, the vaccine efficacy dropped to about 39%. So we're not talking about hospitalization. It still stayed really robust to hospitalization. It still stays really robust to severe disease. But that means breakthrough infections potentially, especially as people get older. You know this depressing thing, immunosenescence. Our immune system is simply not as robust as we age. What are we going to do? We see that it's dropping down and we're learning that a third, a three-dose series is probably what's going to be required for the Pfizer vaccination to prevent those mild to moderate breakthrough infections from happening. Right. But we here had a lot of people, as you pointed out, uh, probably mostly people between the ages of 60 and 65 who got AstraZeneca three months apart. So what I'm saying is, is that data applicable to them? Is there other data from Great Britain where people got a lot of AstraZeneca? Uh, and, and, you know, what do we know? Yeah, we're going to have to keep our ear to the ground to have better data on that. Right now, our data is largely based on Pfizer. We believe that data may be generalizable to Moderna because they're both messenger RNA vaccines. But as far as AstraZeneca is concerned, our data can only be as good as the data that's collected and the data that we have. So AstraZeneca came on a little later. We have no data really from the U.S. because the U.S. never even approved it. A lot of this data is, in fact, based on messenger RNA vaccine booster shots. Uh, Dr. Sly, just uh, as as uh, taking a guess, do you think that it's uh, what we know from the Pfizer experience is applicable to AstraZeneca? Well, yes. What you realize is that nobody is proposing uh, the the third shot, the booster shot, to be uh, AstraZeneca. It's no, no, no. But for for people who had AstraZeneca, yeah. yes. three months apart. Yeah. Uh, will they experience the same kind of waning of, of their antibodies, or will it, is it different? Well, that data is still coming in. So far, it looks as if uh, the, the advantage is to all of those groups, uh, slightly more with one, slightly less with another. But we need to be gathering that, those data over the next uh, few months. But at the moment, there's no hesitation to say that whether you've had the first one or both of your sh- shots uh, initially uh, full, fully vaccinated with AstraZeneca or a combination with Moderna or uh, Pfizer, the mRNA vaccines, the booster shot being given is going to increase your 
or rather decrease your chance of illness and greatly decrease your chance of serious illness or death, all of the boosters are going to be the mRNA for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that 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 wasn't my question. I yeah. just so I wish I could have better data on AstraZeneca, but at this point in time, I think there's a big question mark next to the folks who received AstraZeneca. When do I get the booster? And what about that not insubstantial group that mixed and matched? That's a whole other question. Mm. So yes, we have a lot of questions. This is one of the reasons I was ranting, literally <laughs> ranting, that we need a national vaccine registry to be watching this very carefully. Because Canada's population is a diverse one. And never mind if we, if we were to superimpose the data on testing on top of who got what vaccine, when and where, we would have a far better understanding of what do we do with these disparate populations who've received different vaccines at different times. Um, I, I gather that British data is very good. Yeah, the data from the UK is, is really is very robust, you know, but as I said, I think it's a little premature to, to be saying, you know, is it, is it ready for prime time? I'm actually surprised that BC went ahead and said, as of January, everyone qualifies for a booster shot. To me, that raised kind of a question mark and an exclamation point. I can completely understand older populations because we know that, you know, it does reduce an efficacy. But in terms of the very young population, that, that signal of the myocarditis is not something that should be ignored nor dismissed. You know, it's not a population that tends to get sick. And as Dr. Sly pointed out, for every vaccine we're using here, that's one less vaccine that will be used in other countries. It raises the possibility of having new variants of concern form in these countries. And that's not a a substantial threat. We saw Delta take over Canada literally in the space of a few months. It went from not being very many to being most of the cases we now have. And now with Delta Plus on the horizon, of course, that's not a variant of concern, but could it turn into one? Yes. So we have to think globally in terms of keeping case numbers down. Um, one of the interesting things that uh, um, I've uh, heard from Israel anyway is that uh, the third shot kind of really seals the deal and it's going to be three and done, that that people who get a third shot will not need Another one ever. Uh, Dr. Sly, uh, what do you think of that? I think that's a very rash statement at this point. We really don't have the data to support that. If it works, great. But I I wouldn't put uh, much money on that at the moment, knowing what we know. Hmm. A note of caution, that's always good. Um, people, we have just a few minutes left, uh, but if you have a question or if you want to tell us whether you want a booster shot, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And, you know, I know of people who are snowbirds who have uh, already received a booster shot in the United States. Uh, I guess it's the same. A lot of them, I guess, got shots before we did here. Um, what do you make of that, Dr. Gorfinkel? Well, it's, it, you know, the data has rolled in at this point from Israel that that third dose increases vaccine efficacy for mild to moderate disease from 39% that's at the five to six months after getting that second dose, to 95% after the booster shot. So it really does, in fact, boost the protection to mild to moderate disease. Now, even understand, like for people, severe disease, hospitalization, that protection remains really good. So is it good that they got the booster shot? Absolutely. It's one less dose that Canada has to give. But then on the other hand, we have to understand that when People take booster shots. It's not a one-size-fits-all. You know, the youngster versus somebody who's older and higher at higher risk. Like, it does make sense. And the main messaging I would have for listeners is if you're uncertain about this, it's a conversation to have with your doctor. Does it make sense for me to get vaccinated now? Put it out there. Never mind the nasty guidelines. All questions are good. Ultimately, we only know how long a vaccine is going to last when we study it at that time point. 
So why does Israel say, oh, this will lock in long-term immunity for good? Because there are lots of vaccines out there that you give at zero, one month, six months, and you are locked in for good. But there are others, like tetanus, for example, that we have to keep coming back to. Tetanus is every 10 years. What will COVID-19 be? We will only know when we come to the bridge that crosses that water. So, Dr. Sly, if uh, somebody was asking you, somebody over 65, should I get a booster if it becomes available, what would you tell them? I'd first of all, I'd say uh, I hope you listen to Dr. Iris Gorfinkel on the on the, on Zibby's show because she just answered it for you. Go and talk to the family physician. Each circumstance is a bit different. But drawing back from my point of view, which is public health, we are looking at a dilemma here. Given given an abundance of vaccines, do we a give it to all people uh, who are fully vaccinated and, and a third booster, as we're doing in BC, uh, aiming to, or do we give it just to the vulnerable people who are immunosuppressed and of advanced age and so on? Or we do do we do as much as we can to, to give the rest of the people, those hesitant people who are waiting for something, I'm not quite sure what they're waiting for, to try and get those up to level and at the same time try and supply the rest of the world. Remember, we've been pretty lucky so far. The, the variants we've had have only really been effective in their transmission. The next variant might actually escape the antibodies far more than any of the previous ones have done. And then we might actually be back to ground zero if that ever happens. So we've got to stop these variants coming along. And the way to do that is to try and give the rest of the world the vaccine. Yeah. And uh, in terms of the people who haven't uh, taken a shot yet, I mean, I don't know what more any government could do because they are just bending over backwards and uh, taking vaccines to people. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've said this for at least a few weeks. I think that whoever hasn't had one yet is not going to have one, doesn't want one. But sometimes jobs being uh, withheld, yeah. you know, is a, is a big motivation. Yeah, but that's that's happening now, and they're yeah. getting a couple of extra weeks. And if somebody is uh, willing to go on unpaid leave, I don't know. Well, I have to say the combo pack seems to be working pretty well. And by combo pack, I mean mitigation. No, we're not throwing out our masks anytime soon, nor the hand washing. And yes, we're keeping those HVAC systems going. We're keeping our windows popped open if we can, as long as possible. You know, just trying to do the mitigation dance. That's one aspect of it. Vaccination is another aspect of it. And, of course, vaccine passports. You know, the, the concept of providing people with a bit of an incentive to make sure they're vaccinated. Now, you could argue, should that incentive include things like their job? I would argue absolutely, because everyone has a right to safety. You cannot smoke in somebody's face, sorry to say it, and nor can you work as a healthcare worker and potentially infect somebody with your asymptomatic disease six months after, you know, you've been, you know, six months later or five months later, just because you feel well does not mean you're necessarily protected from the disease. So we know vaccination works. Okay. You know, is it and optimal? No, we just have to make the best we can with what we have. Okay, when, and we wait to see if uh, boosters are going to become more readily available here in Ontario. And that's all the time we have. Thank you, Dr. Timothy Sly, Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. Thanks, Libby. Many thanks, Libby. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. What will it take to get healthcare back on track as the pandemic wanes? The Ontario Medical Association has come out with an extensive plan, but it boils down to five points. And those are reduce wait times for the backlog of services, needing uh, patients needing a test or treatment uh, for any type of surgery or a chronic disease, expand mental health and addiction services, improve home care and other community care, strengthen public health and pandemic preparedness. So, 
for me, the big question is, how does this stack up against what the province is already promising in terms of clearing the backlog? And what do you think? What is most important for you? And what have you missed because of the pandemic in terms of your health care? Was it a regular checkup? Was it a test? Was it a, a surgical procedure like a hip replacement? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Adam Kassam, president of the Ontario Medical Association. Hi, doctor. Libby, good afternoon. So uh, that's my big question. How does what you're asking for stack up against what the province is offering? So Libby, this is a plan for the future. And we were actually very excited and proud to be uh, going to Queen's Park yesterday and meeting with party leaders and actually presenting this nonpartisan plan uh, for the future of healthcare in this province. It's a five-point plan that you outlined. It has five major pillars. And let me just say that uh, we came to the conclusion about these five pillars based on the most extensive consultation process in the 140-year history of our association. We canvassed almost 8,000 Ontarians from 600 communities. We had 110 healthcare stakeholder groups, including nurses, uh, pharmacists, uh, PSWs, and other associations. We also had 1,600 of our own doctors here in Ontario contribute uh, to, their, to this feedback. And these five key priorities need our immediate attention. And we have a number of suggestions on each of them in order to address them now. Yeah, let, let me just ask you, though. I mean, I think the question, because the province has been saying that it's on it. And back in the summer, it announced that, for instance, for the surgical backlog, they're going to be operating at 115% of capacity. Uh, and they made other announcements. I mean, I, I had my own experience with home care, and it's a, apparently in transition to Ontario Health Team. So I'm just, I, I, I get what you're saying, but it is... Is the province on track to deliver, or or um, is that not working out and they need to uh, sort of look at what you're saying as something different? Well, let me, let me first say that we recognize and appreciate the leadership and contribution of the Ford government's commitments and uh, their investments, uh, not only in the, uh, the issue of backlog and, and care provided uh, to get through that, but also sort of looking forward to the future. And we also recognize the work that the chief medical officers of health have done, as well as Ontario's doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers throughout this pandemic. And while the investments that the government has made to date is, I believe, putting us on the right track, we need to keep on doing more because ultimately this is a plan that actually takes us out years, not just um, you know months ahead. And so I think what our focus on here with this plan is not only the next, let's say, six months of this fourth wave and, and, and you know, getting into this recovery, but a recovery that is likely to take years uh, to, to basically improve our healthcare system. Uh-huh. And um, just to get back to where we started from, uh, what's your estimate of how long that will take? Well, I think that based on our data that we have analyzed uh, at the Ontario Medical Association, you talked a little bit about the backlogs at the top of the segment, which is that 20 million points of care have gone delayed as a result of COVID-19. So that's someone's hip or knee replacement that's gone delayed. It's someone's cataract surgery that's gone delayed. It's someone's uh, cancer diagnostic or screening, like a colonoscopy or a mammogram that's gone delayed. But as you were alluding to earlier as well, you know, this also has issues in terms of access to things like community-based care or family doctors and primary care and mental health specialists. And so this uh, this is a significant issue. The magnitude is is a, is a very large one as far as the backlog. And so um, we have uh, multiple ways and avenues to try and address this. And this is what this plan offers. Um, yesterday in the cabinet shuffle, the federal government created uh, an entire kind of junior ministry for addictions. It, it had some people scratching their heads because it's really a provincial responsibility. Uh, are are you pleased about that? And do you have any understanding about how that may contribute uh, to what you're asking for? 
Well, I think that we do need a not only a federal but also a provincial strategy on mental health. We applaud the fact that there is attention now being drawn to this area. We know that their minister Tobolo here in Ontario is a, someone who's looking after that file from the from the government's perspective. But uh, this is exactly the reason why Libby we have also called for in this plan, in our plan, uh, in our prescription for Ontario, and actually an increase in federal commitment to the Canada health transfers to 35% of spending. And so we believe that healthcare is a team sport, and both federal, provincial, and municipal governments have a role to play. Okay. All right. Dr. Adam Kassam, thanks so much for that. My pleasure. Okay. Uh, let's bring in uh, Dr. Michelle Cohen, who is in Brighton, Ontario, a family physician. Hi, Dr. Cohen. Hi, how are you? Fine. How are you? I'm doing okay. Well, um, again, my question is, um, you know, in terms of, of your own patients, so what kinds of things have they missed or had delayed because of the pandemic? And, and uh, how do you think we're doing in terms of clearing that backlog? Well, I don't, in terms of clearing the backlog, I think we're, we're just getting started. And so it will depend on what happens with this fourth wave and, and hopefully what will happen in the coming year that we will prevent uh, future waves from overwhelming our system. But uh, so my patients have had a number of procedures delayed or canceled. Uh, I've had that big issue with respect to that. And I know our uh, local surgeons and specialists are doing their best, but there are some things that they can't avoid. So we've had to deal with a lot of issues around procedures being delayed. And then that tends to come back to primary care um, because the patient really has nowhere else to go. And so we're kind of treading water, doing our best to try to keep the situation as stable as possible until appropriate specialist care is available. What, um, what and then a number of, of screening tests, sorry? Sorry, just can you give us an idea of what kind of procedures have been delayed? So surgical procedures, so things like hip and knee surgeries, um, elective procedures, which are sometimes, you know, we, we call these procedures yeah. elective to imply that they're not essential or not important, but, but really the, what defines elective versus something that's urgent or, or non-elective is, is a pretty uh, grayish area. So, so yeah, sur- many, any surgical procedures, um, some cancer procedures have been delayed as well, um, and, and a lot of issues with major musculoskeletal procedures procedures too. So again, hip and knee replacements and those sorts of things have been an issue and some cardiac procedures as well. So, and sometimes because I'm in a smaller area, excuse me, I've had uh, patients have had to travel further than they would have had to travel otherwise um, to access specialist care when our local smaller hospitals are overwhelmed. So that's a big problem too, because not everyone is able to to travel that far and that can put a big demand on a family uh, to have to, to make a, a big trip out to Toronto or Kingston or Ottawa or something to access care that they could have otherwise accessed closer to home. Yeah. Um, I'd like to bring in also Dr. Sohail Gandhi in Stainer, Ontario. Hi, Dr. Gandhi. Hi, Libby. So uh, we've just been uh, talking to Dr. Cohen about the kinds of procedures her patients have had delayed. Uh, what about you? What have you found in your practice? Very similar to what Dr. Cohen has experienced. Uh, I would also add that I've experienced uh, a number of delays with ophthalmological procedures, uh, patients who need cataract surgery, uh, as well as uh, what Dr. Cohen has already mentioned. And, you know, just to give you an example of how, where things lie right now, in my own practice right now, I have three people who are in the hospital who are not sick, who are awaiting a nursing home bed, uh, but there aren't any beds, and I expect them to be in, in hospital taking up an acute care bed for the next three or four Four months at least, if not longer. Right. That's a huge problem in the entire system. Um, so I'm just trying to uh, kind of calibrate, you know, the, the OMA has come out with these recommendations for getting back on track and for the future. And clearing the backlog is a key part of it. Now, the province in the summer already announced a plan, and I think it w- had to do with operating at 115% capacity. But, but part of the issue is, uh, you know, even if you wanted to to kind of, uh, you know, do it faster, who's going to do it? We only have as many specialists as we have, and, and frankly, a lot of them are burnt out or getting there. 
Yeah, if I may, I wasn't sure who you directed that to, but if I may, you're quite correct. You know, um, the vast majority of physicians in Ontario are working as hard as they can and, and harder than they've ever worked in their lives during the pandemic, and so that's certainly a concern. But but I would also point out that one of the things the plan calls for is to have, uh, you know, a, a rethink of how many of these procedures are provided. Uh, if we look at things like uh, colonoscopy, if we look at things like uh, you know certain knee replacements and shoulder replacements, it's become quite evident that we can do those things outside of a hospital setting in a much more cost-effective manner. And we can do more of those, actually, uh, in the same time than we could in a hospital setting. And so it's it's a matter of sitting down and talking with the physicians who provide that service and also the patients, which this, you know, this paper did, and saying, look, let's look and explore these alternative methods so that we can work on clearing the backlog. The, the funding was much appreciated by the government. I mean, it, it opened up the operating rooms, and that's great, and, and that's fine. But it, it simply said, do the procedures the same way that you've been doing them all along. And, and this plan does ask to sit down and try and come up with new and better ways and more modern ways of providing these services. Uh, some people often complain that if it's, I mean, we have a public system that pays for it, but it's it's in a private clinic. And I think what you're suggesting would be more in a private clinic. Is there any issue with that, Dr. Cohen? And with doing uh, scopes and other sorts of procedures in, yeah. a, in a private clinic. So yeah. I understand some of those are, are already, that's already happening to some degree. And so I'm not quite sure on how exactly the, the funding model for those uh, procedures would work out, where the, what proportion is, is OHIP covered and, and, and whatnot. But I, and those clinics tend to be privately owned as well. But so I know that there are some issues sometimes with how procedures done out in a private clinic setting versus in a hospital setting, what the decision-making is around uh, when procedures are done and, and how they get funded. But, but uh, so I think there potentially there's a lot of conversation that could be had around that, as, as Dr. Gandhi is saying, um, in terms of decision-making and not just deciding to do things exactly the way they were done in the past. Um, and then perhaps trying to, to be a bit more adapt, just adapt to the current situation and adapt to the needs of, uh, of our, our population right now and the way that needs have changed with the pandemic going forward. Uh, one of the things in this list is expanding home care and community care. And uh, uh, I'm, uh, I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about this because I experienced this and the Ford government uh, kind of uh, promised to abolish a whole level of bureaucracy created by the Wynn government called Lynn's. They have not done that. Uh, and they were going to put it into Ontario health teams. Right now, there are sort of two separate bureaucracies mm-hmm. <laughs> that, 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 uh, I think suck up a lot of the funding for it. And there are also people who are saying that actually home care and long-term care should be bundled together because that's where the continuum is. Uh, I mean, do you, do you have, um, confidence, Dr. Gandhi, that the, the province's plans for reorganizing this are, first of all, anywhere near being realized and that they're the right way to go. Yeah, so, so they're not uh, near being realized, that's for sure. Uh, the initial plan that, that actually had, uh, I had some optimism about the initial plan um, that was developed by uh, Dr. Ruben Devlin uh, before his uh, his untimely passing, uh, I thought had a lot of potential for discussion and really would have made a difference. The pandemic came and everything got sideswiped, like, uh, you know, nothing happened other than pandemic work for the past 19 months, and that was uh, very unfortunate. Uh, but the initial plan did call for a transition over into the new system, which I think would have been quite a bit better because it allowed for bundled funding. It, it specified, very importantly, something that the OMAS plan is also calling for. It specified for digital secure communication between healthcare providers on patient and allowing patients access to their, uh, to their healthcare providers securely, digitally as well, which I piloted actually in my neck of the woods a few years ago and, and had tremendous uh, efficiencies and worked really, really well. So um, the initial version of the plan, yeah, I, I would support, but you, you're right. Uh, with everything that happened in the past two years, it's really gone by the wayside a little bit and, and needs to be restarted. I'm going to take a call from David in Toronto. Hello, David. Hi, Libby. How are you today? Fine. How are you? Very well, thank you. I have more questions than uh, than anything else, and I don't know if you will be able to answer them or your panel or future panels. So... 
the government may have saved a lot of money on treatments for, you know, whether it be cataracts, knee surgeries, heart, et cetera, et cetera. They got their money from the federal government. So is the provincial government just reinvesting the saved funds or are they adding more to it? Um, also, what is the OMA's position? Are they going to triage certain things such as heart conditions, cancer, um, ophthalmology, the same way that was done with the, um, the COVID patients? How are they going to go and, and clear up the backlog? Um, well, I, I'm assuming that at the backlog is somewhat being cleared, and I'm assuming that that they are they triage it according to need. But I'm going to let Dr. Gandhi. Can you answer David's question? Yeah, so I, I can't answer the question about uh, what the government did with with money that the uh, the federal government gave because I, I don't have access to that. Uh, I will say just that no money was saved. Uh, and I can tell you no money was saved because um, one of the things that happened with, with some of the, the cuts and stuff that was made in the past is it just it just put, kicked the ball down the road, right? Like somebody 10 years ago decided that we had too many nursing homes and stopped building nursing home beds uh, because it cost $150 a day to keep people in nursing homes. Well, now what's happening is patients are languishing in hospitals at 1000 bucks a day because there aren't enough nursing home beds, right? So no money was ever saved by any of this, I can, I can assure you of that. Uh, in terms of triage, um, one of the things that we would like to focus on, and I think is really important to focus on, is, is all the preventative stuff. Because any time you spend money on preventative care, the screening that Dr. Cohen talked about earlier uh, for cancers, for example, uh, the, the screening for things like cholesterol and heart disease, uh, anytime you focus on that kind of care, and uh, you will reduce the cost burden down the road. And so that's really where the focus should be. Okay, David, thanks for your call. I hope that uh, we will answer more of your questions in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, We're basically out of uh, time on this, Dr. Cohen. What would you like to leave us with on this? Well, I think we have a lot of work to do clearing this backlog. Um, It would be fantastic if this were an opportunity for the government to re-envision what the healthcare system could be, what an effective, truly effective uh, and compassionate um, and efficient healthcare system could be. And I think to some degree this OMA plan is is trying to put forward something that could be um, a helpful restart to our healthcare system once this backlog is cleared. So, uh, you know, I I remain uh, skeptical as always of the government's interest, true interest in diving into this issue and solving this problem um, rather than kind of just uh, doing what they they typically do, which is kind of reshuffle the the deck chairs to some degree and and readjust the bureaucracy to more or less the same effect. But, you know, I'd really hope that this is an opportunity for the government to see that uh, massive change is needed and and this is a a bit of a a guidance to how that can happen and that that the workers in the healthcare system are on board with partnering with the government to make positive change. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Michelle Cohen and Dr. Sohail Gandhi. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Take care. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, yesterday, uh, there was a a big announcement on long-term care, uh, 193 new inspectors. Also, there's talk about new licenses. Uh, The applications for them are underway and some concerns about that. So we will have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.